My Taste Buds Today show brought to us by our good friends at Yahoo Fantasy Football. This NFL season, my Taste Buds, be your own general manager. Be a winning general manager. Turn this season into a fist full of epic wins by joining a Yahoo Fantasy Football League. Yahoo has spent the entire offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. So when you play fantasy football on Yahoo, the wins are as epic as the season is long. Yahoo Fantasy is also the only app where you can manage all of your season long and daily fantasy teams in one place all season long your daily fantasy teams in one place create or join a league now at yahoo.com slash carbs fantasy football that's yahoo.com slash carbs fantasy football taste buds a couple great things going on at the ringer right now if you go online at the ringer.com Miles Surrey has a couple stories. One story that I have to highlight. I mean, I know that this is we're gonna we're gonna push out the shark movie Renaissance that he wrote, but God bless Miles. There's also a, a very nice breakdown that he did of this incredible goal by Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney has come across from from England. Uh, soccer star Wayne Rooney. He's here in Washington D.C. He had an unbelievable play. I encourage you to read Miles's piece about Wayne Rooney as well. Of course. His, his piece about the shark movie Renaissance this week on The Shark House, which is the golf podcast I do with my good buddy Jeff Shackelford. It's Tiger, it's Tiger, it's Tiger. Congratulations to Brooks Kepka. He won the PGA Championship in a in dominant fashion, but boy, Tiger Woods gave us all a thrill. Check that out on The Shack House. It's available on the Ringer Podcast Network now. Now let's get in that belly with House of all right my famished friends my taste buds my hungry homies we have done it we're back another episode of house of Hearts. the food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people i am your hungry host joe house this show is on the ringer podcast network my taste buds, great show today. We have as a guest the executive producer of No Passport Required, a six-show series on PBS right now. The last episode runs uh, this week, but you can go online, obviously, and binge this sucker at eater.com or at pbs.com. Sonia Chopra, the executive producer, is on. We're talking to her about this show with Chef Marcus Samuelson. It's terrific. Jump in and listen to that. We also have on the show, Juliet Lippman is on Cape Cod, so we got her podcast partner, Amanda Dobbins, to stand in for food news. It is a lively conversation. We talk about chicken, and we talk about Four loco. I encourage you to give that a listen. But let's jump in that belly with Sonia Chopra. All right, my taste buds, very pleased to have as a guest today, the director of editorial strategy for Eater.com and the executive producer of a terrific show that has been running on PBS, six episodes this summer, a perfect show for the summer. It's called No Passport Required. 
Sonia Chopra, welcome to House of Carbs. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So you are in Atlanta, Georgia at the moment. I'm in Washington, D.C. at the moment. You and I have crossed paths on the food scene before indirectly, which is to say we were both guests on the Eater's podcast upsell back in april talking about baseball food yes we were baseball food is my favorite subject um i think it is the best thing in the entire world so um we'll we'll, we'll compare notes on that very 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 briefly before we jump in to no passport required i uh want to know i know that you and daniel janine you and, and danny g sampled a lot of um, the Major League Baseball cuisine. Did you get to the Nats station? Because I, I have come to fall in love with the with the Nats offering this season. Um, did we get to the Nats station? Remind me, what were they serving? It was a grilled cheese with crab. Oh, yes. So another thing you don't know about me is that I'm obsessed with grilled cheese sandwiches. I have a grilled cheese blog. It's called grilled oh. cheese sandwiches I know and love. Boom. I did indeed have that grilled cheese sandwich and I wish I had had it fresh, but it wasn't that bad, even though it was kind of served out of context. Oh, I get it. Right. Well, I, I've had the good fortune to enjoy it fresh and it, it has exceeded expectations. I have to say it was, I was prepared for so much less on the show. I described the different, um, food situation at, at uh, nationals park that I, uh, uh, love and that I visit every time I go, but um, this the, the grilled cheese with crab has really n n put itself in the mix. It's it's right there at the top of the list. Um, do you have an item at the? So you're home in Atlanta. What what is your go to when you're? Uh, it's the new stadium in, in in the outskirts of Atlanta, right? Yeah, it's the new stadium. It's right on the border of Atlanta and Cobb County, which is actually where I grew up. So it's been really interesting to follow that. Um, I am embarrassed to say I've not been to the Brave Stadium yet since they moved last season, but of course I'm really excited about the Waffle House. Uh, I can't wait to try some of the new offerings too, and I'm I'm excited. We're doing well for once. So yeah, right. Well, you're ahead of the Nats in the standings. We're not going to talk about that any further. But right, the, there is a Waffle House physically inside the stadium, right? So they say. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back on and, and report on that. One last Atlanta question before we jump in: Do you? Sonia Chopra, have a position on the J.R. Cricket's lemon pepper wings. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, so here's the thing. I grew up in Atlanta. Um, I'm from the suburbs. A lot of people are going to yell at me if I say I'm actually from Atlanta. And it was really, really amazing to see them kind of grab onto this cultural moment after the show Atlanta talked about them. So right. regardless of how I feel about them myself, I'm really happy to know that something from Atlanta is kind of making its way into the um, the natural or the national conscious or whatever it is. Yeah, right. So we had as a guest, uh, our beloved pal, Rembert Brown, uh, Atlanta's native son who came on and extolled. Yeah. So we talked about the wings. If, if there was a, another food that, that, uh, you know, would, would be representative of Atlanta, if it wasn't these wings, what would it be from your perspective? You know, I think Arnold Palmer's the drink. I know it's not necessarily something that was created in Atlanta, but that feels really, really iconic to me. I think fried chicken and waffle, although that's another thing that's kind of known across regions and across areas, also feels very true to Atlanta. Um, anything with pimento cheese, boiled peanuts, 
Okay. Coca-Cola, of course. You're talking my talk. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a big golf guy and I come down to Augusta and, and take in the golf tournament down there as often as I can. And all that's a flavor profile for every visit that I make down to Augusta. So yeah, like a dollar pimento cheese sandwich and Arnold Palmer is really all you want. I love it. So enough about Atlanta, because again, they are ahead of the Nats in the, in the standings right now. I want to talk about this fantastic show that, that you and the eater folks conceived of and beautifully executed. And you're working with, with PBS. It's no passport required. It's a series that's following chef, Marcus Samuelson, as he travels across this great country of ours, learning about uh, immigrant communities that have influenced America, and we're showcasing how food can bring Americans, old and new, together around the table. Where did this idea come from? So this is something that we think about a lot at Eater. We cover food, we cover restaurants, we cover dining, and there's often a discussion that we have about everything, right? Sometimes when you talk about restaurants, you're really talking about money, you're talking about class. And so we've, we've considered a responsibility that we're covering all kinds of restaurants, all kinds of food traditions and food cultures across America and across the world. So this is something that, that we talk about quite a bit. And we've done, you know, some other big, really immersive projects around um, like immigrant traditions and immigrant foods. And we did a video series called Cooking in America that, that kind of is a similar concept. We had a host and he would go to different restaurants and kind of talk about for example, Laotian food in, in Oakland or things like that. So um, this is obviously something that's really important to us. And so when we talked to Chad Mum, our box entertainment lead, and he wanted to develop a show, it kind of all came together naturally. And Marcus Samuelson, who is a, an immigrant twice over, was really the perfect host for it. And from the beginning, he was totally on board. We pitched the show with him in mind, and he came down to D.C. with us. And it's really just kind of all happened really naturally. So w- when did this uh, come together? Was it coincident with um, the recent political phenomena of our current president or did it precede his arrival? It actually happened before. So two summers ago, we went down to DC and pitched the show. So we were kind of in an election moment, but the election hadn't happened yet. And it, and it just feels so natural and so important right now. So we feel really grateful to be able to tell the story. Right. Um, so, so, in the first place, uh, once you kind of got the green light um, through through both Vox uh, and and PBS, how did you come up with the cities that you chose? We wanted to be able to tell a lot of different stories. We wanted to kind of look at immigration and look at kind of the different waves and different communities to showcase a really holistic, comprehensive picture of America. So to kind of all of the stories, of course, individually are very important and, and very meaningful. But when you take that larger step back, we wanted to produce a season that really showed off America in all of the different ways that immigrants come together. So we have um, Arab American food, Middle Eastern food in Detroit, which is something that feels really of the moment and even felt really of the moment two years ago when we were really starting to put this together. And of course, it's only since then become something that more and more people are paying attention to. We have the Vietnamese food in, in New Orleans and uh, Vietnamese food and the Vietnamese communities. Ha- there's so many different kind of immigrant enclaves of, Viet- of the Vietnamese community. And so to pick New Orleans where that's not the largest, the largest is in San Jose to pick that felt really interesting to us. Um, Indo-Guyanese food in, in New York city and Queens, that's really interesting because that's not a community that a lot of people know about. Right. So to, to showcase something that's really big and really prominent inside of Queens, but that people in other places haven't heard about felt really interesting to us. Uh, Haitian food in Miami. Marcus likes to say that 
that came about after President Trump called Haiti a shithole. But really, we'd been planning that from the beginning. That's the community that we'd done some research on before for Eater, and it, it came together really naturally. So people have heard of Mexican food in Chicago. They haven't heard of Haitian food in Miami, and it just kind of all came together. Yeah, and, and the last episode, you and I are together on uh, on a Monday. The, these episodes run on PBS week by week on, on a Tuesday. So the last episode that's going to run tomorrow evening is about my hometown uh, and, and the Ethiopian food and the vibrant culture here um, in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, that's a kind of a, a, a natural landing place for, for Marcus. Um, and I, it, it really resonated. I am very excited to see this episode. I, I have to confess I'm, I'm old school, which is to say I'm old. And so I've been watching the episodes, not online, but instead on television as they've become available. I'm going to have to watch this, the, the, the Ethiopian episode in Washington, DC, um, online because I'm traveling, but I, uh, I'm very happy to have you at this this moment as the kind of the wrap up point because uh, part of what I want to do is encourage all of the hungry homies, the taste buds, all the culinary comrades. This is an extraordinarily um, bingeable uh, uh, set of, of of shows, and the episodes are all right around like 52, 53 minutes, and they're all available on uh, Eater.com and on PBS's website. So it's it's a great moment for you and I to be together. Can you give me a little preview of what to anticipate with the show um, about the Ethiopian community here in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that Marcus was born in Ethiopia and he didn't spend a lot of time there when he was really young. Um, he and his sister and his mom all had tuberculosis and they went to the hospital in Addis Ababa and um, then they, after his mother passed away, they moved to Sweden. And so he didn't spend a lot of time there, but he's been going back to Ethiopia. He married an Ethiopian woman. He has these true connections, this culture. And it's something that when you talk to him, you learn, it's something that he really believes in strongly, but he's had to kind of fight for it. And I am, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants. And so I feel that kind of same, you feel really connected to a culture, but it's hard sometimes to really understand all of it because you grew up somewhere else. And so you're, kind of fighting to, to figure out where you fit in and how you belong. And so it was really interesting to have Marcus in D.C., which is a city that's really known for their Ethiopian population and also for a lot of, of African-American history. And to have him in that city kind of exploring something that he feels so close to was really interesting. The food is really good. There's a coffee ceremony, a traditional Ethiopian coffee ceremony. There's a lot of injera, which is that spongy flatbread that's so good. Yes. Um, he drinks a fermented honey wine, which is called Tej, which oh. is really interesting. The food is really amazing, and it looks really good. Um, and the the story is just, of course, all about connection and community, which is so important, especially right now. Yeah, and one of the things that I have um, in, enjoyed, if you don't mind, me editorializing a little bit or just sharing my own experience with the show, there's always that fine line between um, treating – uh, a community that has been around for decades in, in, in a city as, as though you are, it's, it's being discovered as though it's, you know, you're doing some kind of a, a reveal, a revelation. And part of, of what I've really admired is, is, is kind of twofold. Um, in the first place, uh, it, and, and maybe it's just a function of Marcus's personality. There isn't that, you know, voila, voila sort of aspect to any of his um, kind of, kind of uh, presentation. 
and he's he's really um, unassuming, and and he's in a way like the perfect ambassador. He comes in and immediately starts taking directions from folks. I love the descriptions I've seen where he's basically walking into kitchens with that where grandmas and aunties have been running the show forever, and he and he knows exactly how to immediately, uh, you know, he he he's not Chef Samuelson in that in that context. Um, and, and he blends about right in and takes uh, direction. Did you know when you started the collaboration with Marcus um, that he was the right fit for this? We hoped he was. So we were really hoping that we could produce a show that felt true to the way that we think about immigrant communities inside the United States, which is, of course, that they are American communities. Um, and so we were hoping to find a host who could help further that mission and help kind of tell those stories for the communities and for people who can really identify with them instead of just discovering something new and vibrant and authentic. Right. So we, um, we were looking for that in a host and Marcus who, you know, was born in Ethiopia and then moved to Sweden and then moved to the United States and lived in like a million other countries along the way. We hoped that he felt that way. And it turns out that he does. He's very respectful and he's very eager to learn. So like you said, he walks into a kitchen, he's not a chef. He walks into a kitchen and he's there to learn and to really find out more about the food traditions and, and what, how they came about. So the, the Haitian episode in Miami is a really good example of that. He's in a home kitchen and he's learning about this soup with a beautiful story. It's called Soup Jamu. It's a pumpkin soup, a squash soup. Oh, and I saw really this. And it really symbolizes um, the Haitian independence after the slave rebellion. So it was a soup that the slaves had to make for their masters and they weren't allowed to eat it themselves. And then after the rebellion, it became this true symbol of, of independence. And that's so amazing to me. That's a story I didn't know anything about that before. And to learn that and to learn about something that has such true meaning is really incredible. And Marcus can tell that story without, you know, putting a weird layer on it or making it about something that's exotic. And I think that's so important. And that's such a good way to talk about food culture right now. So it's been really great. And that was the thing. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that learning aspect. I felt like I was learning simultaneous with Marcus, you know, in, in the consuming of the, of the episodes. And as one of the things, I mean, you know, that, that breaks our, our hearts about Anthony Bourdain's passing. Um, he was always, you know, he, he was so deft at letting us kind of share the experience and always created for me kind of a longing to go, um, you know, abroad and, and, and have the crazy experiences he was having. The beautiful thing about this show, no passport required is it's really just a plane ticket away. These are all great American cities, great American food cities with enormously, you know, deep food traditions. And, um, you know, there, there is a sharing through no, no passport required, of cuisines that that don't you're not being beaten over the head like you you wouldn't think necessarily to go try the pho in New Orleans because the times that I've been to New Orleans I've I'm in I'm in the I'm in an oyster bender or I'm in a uh, you know a Cajun yeah exactly you got it and and so now I I I love having you know this this reason to go uh, try the pho I wouldn't have, have even known where to be to begin. Um, and I like very much the, uh, I know we don't, we don't love this word, but, um, maybe I'll try not to use it. I was going to use the word authentic. I'm going to, I'm going to steer away from it. A different kind of Mexican in Chicago, uh, you know, something that emanates directly from the culture. I loved Marcus's quote there where he's talking about the tortillas and he, and he's reveling in the complexity of them and saying, this is like three star, three Michelin star food 
that is available, you know, for, 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 for pennies, you know, comparatively. Um, and it's, it's just a, a revelation. And to show the work that goes into it too, like the carnitas in the Chicago episode, or there's a scene where um, Marcus and Chef Diana Davila are making this green mole at her restaurant, Mitokaya, which I just went to a couple of weeks ago. It's very delicious. Oh but my. she's grilling everything. She's grilling the lettuce. She's grilling the onions. Like there's so much work that goes into this food and the flavors are so complex and so layered. So I think that's really interesting too. So um, tell me something over this, this season of, of six episodes. Um, you mentioned, you know, kind of one uh, uh, aspect of, of the Miami experience where you, you learned something you didn't know about. But what? tell me something that, that surprised you, because the, the show was in development for, you know, uh, uh, two years. And you, you, your own self, was you were on the road for quite a bit, right? Yeah, I went to a couple of the cities, which was really great, really good experience. I think my favorite thing about working on this show was that we really got to learn a lot more about a lot of different communities. So kind of how they're coming together and how they're being supported. Um, One thing that I loved in the Detroit episode was really learning about how inclusive the Middle Eastern community, the Arab American community is. There's a lot of different times where you're seeing a queer, black, Middle Eastern, kind of all of these different communities coming together and, and building a business or building something new. And I really love that. I really love that we get to show how inclusive different communities are and that it's not just, you know, people in their neat, tidy immigrant enclaves, like doing their own thing, completely unavailable to everybody else. I think that's really important. Um, One thing that I really love that was surprising on the production side is that we we're making a food show, right? Like we work at Eater and we, we were expecting to make a show that was about food and about travel and about America. And Marcus really pushed us to think a little bit beyond that and to think about all of the different things that make a community and a culture what they are. So also music, also sports, things like that. And I, I loved that. And I loved kind of getting out of my work comfort zone and thinking more about how cricket or boxing or, you know, Ethiopian dance could tie into the episode as well. Yeah. And, and I, this is, uh, one of the things that I didn't anticipate that I didn't expect. I didn't expect to see a wedding in the very first episode. And in, <laughs> well, that's, I don't know. You, you'll have to, uh, find out, a, come up with a collaboration. I mean, there's always, uh, you know, the food at the wedding is a crucial thing. There's, I feel like that's a content rich idea there. So, so you, no wonder, uh, you're the, you're the head of editorial, uh, strategy at, at Eater. I mean, it's, it's quite brilliant. Um, I mean, weddings but, are the best way to kind of really understand the culture. Like I, my family's Indian and every single person I talk to ever says, Oh my God, I can't wait to go to an Indian wedding. They look so fun. They look so colorful. So I feel like it's a really nice way to kind of understand people's culture, even though when you hear it a hundred times, you're kind of like, okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also, um, was just so surprised by the depth of, um, Guian, is it Guianan? How to Guianese cuisine? Oh yeah. The Guyanese cuisine. Guyanese. I, I just, you know, I, I, I know where it's physically located on the map and I understand, you know, sort of the basic thrust of, um, the, the, the Caribbean influences, but it's a, it's a really worldly, uh, food. And that's something that, that I didn't anticipate. And I didn't, I wouldn't have guessed. It feels like, uh, you know, uh, um, in, in New York and Queens, you know, all, all of the, it's truly the, you know, the melting pot of, of, of the United States and, and, and all of the, you know, sort of traditions and so forth that are available there. 
um I, I I would I never anticipated that there's there is a a you know concentration of folks where this could be stood up on its own and decades and decades of of you know this this rich um tradition and this rich food. Yeah, it's such an interesting story to tell because of all the different layers, right? So they had the Indians who came over to Guyana um as indentured servants and then they also had some Chinese who came over and then there's also that kind of colonization element. So there's a lot of British traditions. And then that whole group kind of everybody met and everybody, you know, the generation proceeded and um, they ended up in New York. And so now there's this really, like you said, it's really rich and layered. You can go to a restaurant and they have Guyanese chow mein. They have noodles next to food that my family eats in India next to food that's really kind of Indian or Chinese inspired, but also inspired by Trinidad, which is another really strong influence in Guyana or other Caribbean things and it all kind of really works together. But if you look at a menu, you're like, what is this? Like, what's this weird thing? Because you don't know that. Right. So it's fun to get all those stories and tie those things together. So so I'm going to put you on the spot. I know um, with our children, we never have one that's a favorite, Um, but I'm going to ask you to pick a favorite. Any, anyhow of these episodes, I love the new Orleans one. I can I pick? Oh, I don't know. I I don't know. I love the New Orleans episode. I really like the Indo Guyanism, but I also feel a close connection to it because of my own culture. So I don't know if that counts. I think the stories that we tell in the Chicago episode are really important. The Detroit episode was our first one, so I I I don't I don't think (laughs) you can't choose. All your children are equal, is what you're telling me. Really, they're all really so good and so important. Yeah, well, I, I I agree with the notion that they're all really good. And and no less an authority than Entertainment Weekly just today is is has told America that this show is incredibly bingeable. And I'm here to tell you, hungry homies, I'm 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 put, pouring it out directly from my belly. I'm belly sourcing. No passport required. This is an incredible show. Chef Marcus Samuelson takes off the chef hat and gets into these um, beautiful. Uh, uh, immigrant communities here in these United States of America, and you leave smarter and definitely a little bit hungrier. Sonia Chopra, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I really had a good time. So listen, uh, here's the thing I have to ask you to promise. After you go into to the new Brave Stadium and and give a quick tour of, of, of the place, obviously I know you're going to go in there and have Waffle House. I'm not interested in Waffle House. I know what that tastes like. It's glorious. Um, but fi- find something uh, unexpected and come back on and we'll talk about it. All right. That sounds great. I can't wait. Awesome. Thank you, Sonia. All right, my thanks to Sonia Chopra. Uh, and again, I can't encourage you enough, my hungry homies, to get online and start binging. No passport required. If you haven't been following along all season, all six episodes are available now. Get in there and enjoy this beautiful food journey with Chef Marcus Samuelson. Before we get on to food news, quick word from our pals at Diet Coke. My friends, Diet Coke is shaking things up with a bold new look and four new delicious flavors. Of course, the OG Diet Coke is available. It's right there for you. Still has the same great taste. But now, Diet Coke has added feisty cherry, twisted mango, blood orange, and ginger lime to the mix. These flavors are so bold, you will not be able to pick a favorite. I have asked producer Kyle... 
to give us a personal endorsement. He's telling me that ginger lime goes beautifully with the rotisserie chicken. As you will hear in this conversation coming up with Amanda Dobbins, sometimes chicken can be for one, sometimes chicken can be for, for more than one. Ginger lime and rotisserie chicken is a match made in heaven. Whether you are a longtime fan or just want to try something new, give Diet Coke a taste. You'll see what we're talking about. Diet Coke, because I can. Hungry Homies, today's show also brought to you by our good buddies at Hotel Tonight. Taste buds, if you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you're going to love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find the sweetest deals available at cool top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels that you actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. Even though the name is Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book in advance. Perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is indeed perfect for a spontaneous weekend getaway or a staycation or a three-day weekend or a road trip, or a business booking. It's very easy to use. You book hotels in just 10 seconds. It's three tats and a swipe, my hungry homies. There's also a Perks program. So the more that you're booking, the better the deals get. That's HT Perks. I love this hotel tonight. I've used it many, many times. I am back and forth to New York City. I'm not telling you about all the great meals that I've had because I don't want you to be jealous, but check out at the House of Carbs Instagram. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. All right, my taste buds, it is now time for Food News. Hungry Homies, very, very pleased today. Special guest, we talked last week, Juliet and I, about the fact that she is on Cape Cod this week. And so we looked through the Ringer roster, and there was a very, very natural substitute for Juliet, the deputy editor of Culture at the Ringer, co-host, Juliet's co-host on the Jam Session podcast, Amanda Dobbins. Welcome to House of Carbs. Thank you so much. It is a true honor to be here, and I can never replace... Juliet, I just want everyone to know that, but it is an honor to be just living in her space here on House of Carbs for a minute. We're, we're, there's no replacing. We That's don't good. try and replace anybody. I know. I just you know, wanted to be sure. It's wonderful to have other points of view, other perspectives. We've gotten to know Juliet's palate pretty well. Now, I didn't warn you that I was going to ask you this question, but I want to begin with, with, with this question, Amanda Dobbins. Yes. The summer of 2018, we've, we've uh, been covering kind of the summer palette through a whole series of shows this year. I want to know one thing, one food item or drink, it could be a drink, that has become the Amanda Dobbins summer 2018 belly item. Is there a drink? Is there a food item? Is there a grilling technique? What is your number one for the summer of 2018? So I have an immediate answer but it's kind of embarrassing, but I want to share it with you anyway. So I mean, have you listened to the show? I, yes, I There's know. There's no such I, thing as like, embarrassing. I know. Well, I just kind of, I, when I share this, I want everyone to know that I'm clowning myself a little bit. So <laughs> I cook a lot at home. 
Um, my husband and I both like cooking and especially in the summer, you know, we moved to LA. So we have the grill, we got a little patio. We're very pleased with ourselves. Like we're out here being like, look at all our, you know, fancy meals that we're making. Um, somehow for a long time, my husband was a pescatarian. So fish was good, but there was no meat. And he has started easing meat back into his diet, which is great for me. I can cook a lot of things at home that I couldn't. Somehow chicken was the last frontier. That was kind of the, of all of the meat things, that was the one that he was most resistant to, but we worked our way up. We're getting there. And so (laughs) this is so embarrassing. We started grilling chicken house. We discovered grilling chicken and it's amazing. (laughs) Grilling chicken is pretty good. Grilled chicken can be pretty Pretty tasty. I know this is really embarrassing. But so what we've been doing, we've been doing chicken skewers. And there are a lot of, with a lot of different, I, we make our own barbecue sauce. There's this sriracha glaze, et cetera. Um, but I, like I'm having it tomorrow night for dinner. I'm really excited. And I know that this is the number one food that every single person learns how to cook for themselves. I know it's Captain Obvious. So I think it's pretty funny. It took us, it was like the end of the rainbow for us. But it's pretty good. I get why people like grilling chicken. Oh, I'll tell you what, at the end of the rainbow, it's a pot of chicken gold, Amanda Tobbins. You, you, you scored. You're, Thank you're, very you're, much. you're both. A, Thank you very much. You have much. wealthy, wealthy bellies. You yeah. have wealthy bellies. I mean, look, I, I'm not ashamed. One of my very favorite top three Joe House foods on planet Earth is a roasted chicken with french fries. I mean, I, I that it's just a very simple thing, but it's it couldn't be more wonderful. So, are you, so I'm very happy to hear where where, where you found yourself. Wait, let me since we've started adding chicken to our repertoire. Are you roasting the chicken yourself? Sometimes. Do Lots you, of times I'll go order it. There's a couple yeah. French bistro joints here in the DC area that do it extraordinarily well. There's there's one that inserts so a, a sort of buttermilk layer between the skin and the chicken itself. It's very luxe. I mean, oh, but I can have a very simple. Why? Well, I like it. Sometimes I like it crispy. I know where to go to get a crispy skinned roasted chicken. I mean, you know, look, there's all kinds of of different strokes for different folks, and that's me. I like all, all those different flavors and opportunities. They do say that when you, you know, everyone always makes fun of you for ordering chicken at a restaurant because it's the most boring option. But a lot of people do say that the chicken, and especially a roast chicken at a restaurant will often be the best thing because people at restaurants spend a lot of time uh, perfecting perfecting their te- technique. And not, not only that, but there is an expectation. Like, you can't mess up a, a roasted chicken. If you mess up a roasted chicken, you're going to go out of business. That's true. Because people know they have high standards. Like, the, the American palate for a roasted chicken... <clears throat> it's really true. ...is <laughs> pretty sophisticated and... The roasted chickens had a comeback. A lot of folks, like, there are restaurants now where you have to go in, and if you want the chicken, it'll warn you. If you want the whole roasted chicken, which is always, to me, they say it's roasted chicken for two, but as far as I'm concerned, it's roasted chicken for one. (laughs) You have to order it, like, give it 35 minutes in advance, so you have to order it. Know that you're going to order it when you sit down. Yeah, that's true. Should we do some stories? Yeah, let's talk about some food news. Okay, some food news. I'm ready. The first one is coming to you from the Wall Street Journal by Jennifer Levitz, and I'm just going to read the headline. The bachelorette party's over. Venues snub bridezillas and their entourages. And this is a whole piece about how people don't want bachelorette parties uh, at their restaurants and venues anymore. I'm going to let me read a little bit from it. 
it's wedding. I'm intrigued. Yeah. It's wedding season when throngs of bachelorettes descend with entourages on hotspots from Savannah to San Francisco. Some wineries, tour operators, and hotels want a divorce. Bachelorette. Bach- oh, no. Yeah, I know. I know. Also, bachelorette is a really, really hard word to say I'm learning, but I'm going to persevere. Okay. Bachelorette <laughs> bashes were bringing a prom queen tiara vibe to Montauk Beach House on New York Long Island, says the boutique hotel's operations manager, Giannis Papadiani. It's just not what we go for. Over-imbibing devolved into displays of drama, he says. Half of them end up crying about something, he says. It came to the point where, is it a bachelorette party or a carnival? Uh, And this keeps going on, and it just lists a bunch of people who no longer want bachelorette parties at their restaurants. So, House, I'm of two minds about this. Do you have an opinion? Well, I'm going to tread extremely carefully. (laughs) I'm not... I'm not well-versed in bachelorette parties. Um, in my earlier life as a single fella, yeah. I was never disappointed to be in the same establishment as one of these things because it felt like it was a kind of a, a fun way to get to know a group sure. of young ladies. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I in my bachelor party experience and days, it was not typically a, a target to go to a place with a wine kind of concept or any kind of high-end, high-food concept. The best you could get, we would go have a steak after playing golf or something. But um, most of the time, there was a social element to follow. So the the, the food portion was always like just a, a means to fuel up, to refuel before the real shenanigans got going. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And I should say, because what I just read was, that quote was not exactly um, unsexist, but... The article does point out that bachelor parties can also get out of hand. But here's what they say about that. Um, Bachelorette parties tend to be larger than bachelor parties. And um, says Lauren Kay, who's the deputy editor of The Knot, many women women visit more refined, her words, places where families and couples go, which is what you were saying, right? That like a group of men is not always going to a vineyard. A lot of the conflict in this piece is around wine tasting, I realized, which I guess is Uh, a pretty bachelorette-specific activity. I think so. I don't think I'm not, you know, I'm as as evolved as any male, and I love wine, and I enjoy wine tasting. I just have never done a wine tasting as part of a bachelor party. So may I share a personal anecdote relating to this story? Oh, oh, please do. I, I actually have a several, but once very recent, this very weekend on Saturday night, I went out to dinner with a good friend of mine at Salazar, which is a restaurant in LA. Have you been to Salazar? No, but but I like the sound of it. Yeah, so far. I think you'd like it. So it's kind of it's on the east side, and it's kind of it's Mexican food. It's mostly grill focused. So they have you know mm. carne asada and great yes. pastor tacos, but they'll also do like a full branzino or a larger pork chop. Um, it's really, really delicious. And also you're out on a patio. It's almost entirely outside, which there's not as much outdoor dining in Los Angeles as there should be, in my opinion. So this is a this is a topic for another episode of House of Cards. Yeah. Juliet and I were just touching on this. How can that be? Uh, Los Angeles is fantastic. I, uh, the, the whole point of living in Los Angeles 
is to be outside. I completely agree. I moved across the country and I was like, I'm just going to eat outside for the rest of my life. And then there are all it's warehouses with no windows. And it's really very confusing. I don't understand. But anyway, we'll we'll have this. We're going to save it. You're in on that episode. You're in. Great. I can't wait. But so Salazar is a place that has figured it out. And you go and you have some cocktails and some great food and they got the, the trees are all the right size. It's lovely. You're outside. So I was there on Saturday night with one of my very good friends and it was the two of us just waiting for a table and in rolls the bachelorette party. Okay. And there are a lot of them. <laughs> and it's like, here's how I know it's a bachelorette party. There is the veil. Everyone else yeah. has matching t-shirts. There are oh, sashes. It's a large group. And listen, I I wish this woman well in her marriage and her endeavors. I It's not, and it's great that they are having time together. But as we were being seated, I, like, and I'm not even pulling my friend to this. I was kind of like, can you make sure that we're not sitting right next to the bachelorette party, which is a horrible thing. But also when you go out to dinner, I wasn't there to be a part of their bachelorette party. I was there to have like a nice cocktail outside on a patio. So I get it. Am I just a terrible person? No, I, I think you're, you're apologizing too much. Okay. This is the thing in this, in this, in this day and age, you know, the uh, experience, the individual experience that we have when we go to the restaurant, we've gone to all of the trouble to pull together your life, to get yourself into that restaurant. You have a particular experience that you want at that restaurant. And the social contract in, in that restaurant experience is that everybody else has gone through the same kind of uh, rigmarole to get themselves in there. And there's a basic understanding, a basic anticipation of how it's going to go down. And you don't need this rogue element, this this crazy, uh, you know, um, set of, of, of uh, I mean, I was going to use I, this, this alien intrusion of, you know, uh, of an of a entirely different walk of life coming in and, and messing up what you're, you're hoping for. I think that's really true. And I think it's also... To the extent that they are then forcing the bachelorette party on you a little bit, because they do, listen, groups of people can go out to dinner and be normal and obey the social contract, and that's great, and I support them. And I think there are also bachelor and bachelorette parties that can do the exact same thing and who aren't going to be there whooping and screaming. But once the once the costumes come in, I'm just not confident that they are going to keep to themselves. And as much as I'm happy for them and their friendship, I don't need to be a part of their bachelorette party. I don't ever want to be a part of a bachelorette party again. I've done it. I'm good. Yeah, that's the deal. Like you, if they come in with the t-shirts and the veil and all of it, and it's at a place that, you know, is, uh, it sounds like Salazar isn't, you know, necessarily all white tablecloth and, and white gloves, but it sounds like it's nice enough that that you know, there's expectation of a of a certain uh, uh, mode of conduct, a certain uh, decorum. Yes, then I think then, so. then you don't have to indulge, you know, the upsetment. If you want to do that kind of thing with costumes and hooping and hollering and all that, there's tons of places for it. It's Go to true. a bar that also happens to serve food. Nobody will possibly complain about that. A bar wants as many people as possible. And you know what bars love? 
the bars love young ladies. Really that true. brings in young men and everybody's spending money to have a great time. I also got to um, feel that you're going to get a lot more free drinks if you go to a bar as a bachelorette party. You know, I feel like you're suddenly the center of attention. Just just my thought. I couldn't agree more. We we have this is this, that was a, a, a very rich uh, uh, story. I didn't anticipate it, it going. We might only have time for one more story today, Amanda. OK, well, I think we can do a, a two for one. For the next one. Ready? Oh, I love it. Two okay. for one. This yeah, is my kind of thing. Same themes. So this is like chicken for two for yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So the first story is from Grub Street and it's it's less news, more history, history, but it's great. It's called The Oral History of Four Loco in New York. Now, do you? Oh, my. Yeah. Do you remember what Four Loco was? It, it was this this drink that showed up uh, kind of speaking of bachelorette parties. Yes. It kind of showed up as a party scene yes. drink. And it was, I, I think if I'm recalling it correctly, like Red Bull on Red Bull. Yes. So if I, I will read the description. Um, by 2009, the new iteration of Four Loco, 12% alcohol content, caffeine, guarana, and taurine, and a selection of flavors that included fruit punch, lemonade and uva berry aka grape were sold in a camouflage print can that was like it was kind of a 40 it was like it was like a malt liquor 40 situation except with caffeine and it did, did this go ahead i was just gonna say it took new york where i was living by storm around 2010 when i was in my mid-20s and it, not great personal decisions by me and my consumption of four loco but I think a lot of people feel that way. And this whole article is about how quickly Four Loco took over and became the cult beverage of choice. Yeah, meteoric rise. Did yes. it coincide with, with Jersey Shore or did Jersey Shore precede Four Loco? That's a, it's definitely at the same time. I don't know that Jersey Shore, it's, it, that's very smart because Jersey Shore was 2009, which is exactly when Four Loco took off. I don't remember Four Loco being featured on Jersey Shore, but that might just uh, me, have been me either. A- but it just feels like the 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 most Jersey Shore drink ever. Absolutely, uh, you're exactly right because it's just it was like Red Bull and vodka, but with flavors. And then it kind of took on a mystique of its own. It became this hip thing um, that you wanted to have, especially because it was banned. So quickly. And this whole piece is about how quickly everyone realized that this was a terrible idea and shouldn't be legal. Just <laughs> at all. Like it, this was a horrible. And I think I, I I concur having consumed it should not be legal. And then um, about how once it was kind of banned, then people were trading it on the streets. And you, I remember certain people saying, oh, there's like a bodega on First Avenue that still has some Four loco that you can buy. Um, and oh, so, wow. yeah, so then it took on kind of a significance of its own. So, right. This, the four loco stash houses. Yes, exactly. And now I, there's, I, I, we've moved past it, which is good, which brings me to part two. The other thing that I was going to share with you, and this is some food news, which is, this comes to us from CNBC. And so great. Molson Coors Brewing Co. said that its Canadian unit is entering into a deal that will develop cannabis-infused beverages in Canada. 
So this will be non-alcoholic cannabis-infused beverages for the Canadian market following legalization. So So non-alcoholic cannabis-infused. Yes. So this is... Because alcoholic cannabis-infused is what? A a step too far? Well, I think possibly it would be hard for them to regulate. There is such a thing as CBD beer. It exists, and obviously it's harder to find in the United States because cannabis, you know, weed isn't legal everywhere yet. But Right, right. The laws are all messed up. Yeah, but it's dev- it is a thing and I our Molly McHugh wrote a piece for the Ringer about CBD beer and how they're trying to to make it happen, but it is kind of reaching some of the finding some of the same regulatory hurdles that uh say Four Loco did, even though it's, Oh, sure. Okay. I, you know, I don't think that CBD is doing the CBD beer is having the same effects as Four Loco. I don't really think anything. Four Loco was just a disaster in a can. There's no other it way. Was, to... It was a legend unto itself. Yes. So tell me more about about what what Molson Coors is doing in Canada. What is this drink? So okay, the Denver brewer said its Canadian unit, Molson Coors Canada, is teaming with Canadian cannabis producer, the Hydropothecary Corporation to create a joint partnership to pursue opportunities to develop non-alcoholic cannabis-infused beverages for the Canadian market. There's not a lot of other information here beyond they're going to do CBD beer in Canada. Well, I, I, I love the, the concept. And once again, Canada is ahead of the curve uh, in, in, in sort of developing for the world, um, you know, the, the sort of narc- narcotic of, cho- of choice, the, the stimulant of choice. That's true. I'm open to it. I think it's like the adult version of Four Loco, which works for me because I'm an adult now. So I'm excited <laughs> about these new additives. I'm always excited about new additives. <laughs> Amanda Dobbins, you are always welcome on Food News. And I can't wait for the episode where we talk about the uh, lack of outdoor eating options in Los Angeles. We, maybe we, we we might need to reconvene before that, though. That would be great. I'm honored to have been here, and I will come back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Love you, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you. All right, my culinary comrades, we have done it. My thanks to Sonia Chopra and to Amanda Dobbins, another great house of carbs. Taste buds, you heard Amanda and I talking about grilled chicken. It's still a wonderful time for delicious grilled chicken. If you want to belly source some grilled chicken at us, at the house of carbs is the Instagram. Hit us up. Me and producer Kyle will be checking out all of your postings. There will be another delicious episode of House of Carbs coming up next week, my friends. But until then, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs>